Welcome to Cosmetics, the number one destination for all things cosmetic enhancement, skincare, and beauty. You're joined, as always, by aspiring beauty gurus, Ella James and Caitlin Gregg. Hey! Hi! Hi, guys, and welcome back to another episode of Cosmetics. We just wanted to quickly say best wishes to all our fellow Sydney siders in lockdown. Here's to hoping it's over within the next two weeks and we can get back to normal. In today's episode, we have the wonderful Dr. Aaron Staines join us, who is one of Australia's leading anti-aging and cosmetic physicians. And let me tell you guys, you're in for a treat with this one. If his secret hidden talent doesn't impress you, then his knowledge and expertise sure will. Without giving too much away, in this episode, we do a deep dive on nose filler, covering everything you'd need to know, including who is suitable for the procedure, what the procedure entails, the risks, and much, much more. So let's get into it. So EJ, I've got a question for you. And what would that be? What do you think is the second most popular surgical procedure worldwide? Ooh, boob jobs. Bum, bum. It's rhinoplasty, or as most people know, a nose job. That was my second guess. All right, all right. Question number two, true or false, there's such a thing as the non-surgical nose job. True. Although if you'd asked me a year ago, I wouldn't have believed you. All right, I know you knew that one, but for reals, guys, finding out about the non-surgical nose job last year was one of our biggest aha moments of 2020. Picture this, guys. No downtime, no pain, and a whole new schnoz. And that is why we've invited expert Dr. Aaron Staines on the show today so you can find out all about this revolutionary procedure. Well, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, girls. I'm glad to be here. And could you start off by introducing yourself? Of course. Um, so my name's Aaron. I'm a cosmetic doctor um, based in Sydney, but from Melbourne, moved over in about 2019. Uh, and essentially I work full-time in cosmetic medicine. So doing all things Botox, fillers, thread lifts, uh, yeah, the, the full shebang non-surgical cosmetic medicine. So, yeah. Beautiful. So now we know all about your career, but what mm. we really want to know is what is your hidden secret talent? Or well, my hidden talent. So I have two talents. I'll give you a, a party trick oh. talent. Uh, I can tie a cherry stem into a knot with my mouth. Oh, wow. Uh, but my real talent is I uh, play guitar. So self-taught, uh, age about 12, 13. Uh, it's actually a funny story in that it was my brother's guitar that he was bought for his birthday. And I kind of uh, commandeered it from him without his consent and uh, never brother? gave it back. Hey? Were you the little brother? Uh, the older brother. Oh, I, was gonna say, I don't think it would like work if I was the younger dude. one. <laughs> <laughs> sounds True. like you stole the show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what attracted you to the cosmetic industry? It's an interesting question. And I mean, I, I finished medicine in 2013 and it's, it's quite an up and down, complicated journey for most people that become a doctor. And it's challenging enough to get into medicine. And then once you're in, the hard work begins and you've really got to carve your niche and find something that suits your personality. And I guess what you want to achieve and, and make of your life. And initially I, I was most interested in surgery. So I pursued uh, a lot of postgraduate qualifications in anatomy and uh, surgery at Sydney University and um, the University of Melbourne. And I really went towards more orthopedics and plastic surgery. So um, fixing broken bones and uh, kind of reconstructing tissue after trauma. And I did that as a junior and I loved it. It was so fun and so interesting and challenging and rewarding. Um, but the, 
it came at a cost and I guess it's something that most doctors when they're younger have to make a decision on and it's what you're prepared to sacrifice to do what you love and if you want to do something as specialized as plastic surgery or orthopedic surgery it's all or nothing Mm -hmm. so you give up everything to do that um, and you hustle and grind until your late 30s early 40s um, and you really give everything else away and I, I, I was willing to do it until one day I was operating with one of the consultant orthopedic surgeons and I asked him when you're finished your training and you're a qualified surgeon does your life get easier does it get better does it get more in, enjoyable in a sense you can pursue other things and he just said no you just get used to how bad it is so at that point I, I I realized maybe it wasn't worthwhile and I thought at the end of my career if I look back and reflect on the path I'd taken yes I would have enjoyed it but would it have been worth the trade-off and I didn't think it would so then I had to find something else to do and cosmetic medicine was something that I was familiar with uh, to a small degree uh, I'd, I'd heard about it as a student, um, seen a few treatments done online and, and on TV and on like botched and this kind of yeah. stuff. Um, <laughs> great show, by it. the way. And I started looking more and more into it. And um, my partner at the time, um, who is ex-partner now, was a cosmetic nurse. Um, so I met her while working in hospital doing surgery. Um, and she really introduced me into the basic stuff. So toxin, filler, this kind of thing. And I started doing it on the side, uh, alongside her and I, I enjoyed it. It, it gave me creativity, gave me autonomy, flexibility. It really ticked all the boxes. The only problem was there's, there was no formal training path to take and there Mm. was no, it was, it wasn't so structured as it is in a hospital where you are given a framework to work to and you progress and you tick the boxes and if you're good enough you get through and you're credentialed and you start work this was very much you figure it out uh and if you get it wrong it it, it can go wrong in a big way because the buck stops with you there's no one you can go to to escalate problems or concerns or ask questions especially when you're new because it is quite a protected industry um so fast forward a little bit and i I had eventually quit working in a hospital. Um, At the time, I was doing a bit of um, cover shift or cover work in an emergency department in Melbourne and doing injectables on on the side, kind of 50-50. And there was one week where I actually was working night shift in the ED and day shift in in the cosmetic world. Mm. And then I took a job with a a clinic in Melbourne and they um, knew I was pretty junior and pretty new, uh, but they liked me and and they they thought I had good values and good potential and they sent me overseas for three months to train um, in Asia Mm -hmm. and so I traveled to Asia and in China okay and I uh, stayed with a plastic surgeon who he couldn't speak any English and nor could his his wife could speak very little English and he had three children and a nanny in this tiny apartment and I lived with them you any Mandarin? Did you know any Mandarin? Very little. And don't ask me what it, how to speak it now because I can't remember. Um, so we communicated through drawing and like apps on the phone. And from there, like I really upskilled very quickly. Mm. And this was five, six, maybe seven years ago mm-hmm. now. And when I came back, I, I just knew it was the right thing. 
And that really had solidified that it was what I wanted to do. And whilst it's not as challenging as, I guess, operating on sick people and Mm. unwell people or people that have suffered trauma, it still has its perks and its benefits and its positives. You get to work with people. It's you, you really meet a, a wide variety of types of personalities and and it makes it really enjoyable. Um, and following that, when I got home, and I just knew it was what I wanted to do. And then I just started working and pretty much on my own back. So I've never really worked for another clinic as such. Mm. Um, I've helped some nurses out here and there on the side in the past, but really just built something on my own. Uh, and then I met a good friend of mine now who is a... A surgeon and he does kind of boob jobs and tummy tucks facelifts he works down in Wollongong at the moment and um, I was in Melbourne at the time and he invited me to move to Sydney and come and learn from him and work with him and so I uh, in 2019 got back from two months in Europe and I was I kind of got back and uh, was staying at my dad's place because I'd been away for so long didn't have anywhere to crash and I told my dad two days after getting back, I'm moving to Sydney. And he was a bit surprised. But I moved and relocated to Sutherland Shire and just started working. And it's all been uphill from there. Wow. And I wanted to ask something. You mentioned that the training in the cosmetic space was a little like ad hoc here in Australia. And that's something we've definitely come across. Can you talk a little bit about why? It's ad hoc everywhere, to be honest. And I think it comes down to a fundamental problem uh, which can be reconciled but hasn't been, and that's that these procedures are, by definition, medical procedures in that they you need a medical or a health degree in either medicine, dentistry, or nursing to do them. And depending on your degree, you might have different scopes. So doctors can typically do more than dentists and nurses. Uh, and the, the second component is that despite it being classified as a medical procedure, the over the governing medical board and nursing board don't recognize it as a credential, a credentialed specialty. So it's more seen as a, their adjunct procedures to specialties that already exist, such as dermatology, plastic surgery, ear, nose and throat surgery and general practice. Uh, But when you look into how medicine works and the industry, when you have a basic medical, uh, basic medical degree, you don't, you can go and work for yourself. Legally, you can operate on someone as long as they're aware of your credentials. Mm -hmm. If you go and and masquerade as a qualified uh, ear, nose and throat surgeon performing rhinoplasty, it's not going to work and not going to fly and you can get in a, a, a lot of trouble. But if you are open and say, I don't have a specialty surgical qualification, um, I mean, you need to still have insurance, of course, and the insurers do add a level of uh, safeguard, so to speak, and that they're not going to insure you if you can't evidence some sort of training. Um, but it, it's really very uh, autonomous as, as a specialty in, in inverted commas. And so because there's no formal regulation, there's no credential training pathway with which to take. And so what you have is certain bodies like the Australasian College of Cosmetic Surgeons or the Cosmetic Physicians College of Australia or the I think the CNA is the new nursing one who are kind of industry leading professionals amongst their own degree. So nurses and doctors and surgeons trying to form some kind of governing body that can credential you. 
because it's not regulated by the medical board who is accredited by the government, you don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have corporate encroachment and retail, I guess, medicine, uh, where you have predominantly business people or, or doctors that maybe are more business oriented, seeing potential to make money. And mm-hmm. so they come up with a, a training course, if you can call it that, to give you the, I guess, the overview and the introduction. But a lot of people perceive that introduction and overview as a license to just go and do it. Yeah. And there's a, it's funny, I, I told my dad about this because my dad's a tradesman and he trained my two brothers. And he always would complain to me that they just think they know everything. And it's just, it's transferable across and it's a proven phenomenon called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And people that are new to something, like if you learn something new or you read about something, you don't know what you don't know. And you're typically very confident without realizing you shouldn't be. Mm. And so you have these people that do an introductory course, which in itself gives you a good overview, but they come out thinking it's easy. And it's easy to do. I mean, I could teach most people how to inject Botox in a few hours. That doesn't mean they know when to do it, when not to do it, or how to do it well. And the issue is it's not too difficult to do an okay job. It's very difficult to do a really good job. And it's also dangerous if you don't know what you're doing because it's probability in a numbers game. Even in very experienced hands, something can go wrong, but that probability will be very low. Mm. And if something goes wrong, it can be managed appropriately. Mm. Classic example is in the UK, very poorly regulated. And there are people who don't know what they don't know. And most of the time it's fine, but when it's not fine, it's an absolute disaster. And you can ruin someone's life through improperly injected fillers. I think a recent one relevant to what we're talking about today is uh, a beautician in the UK who did nose filler on a young lady and blocked the blood flow to the nose tip and the whole nose tip just died. Um, And she had to go to hospital. I'm not sure if she needed surgery, but it was horrendous and it's life ruining. Mm -hmm. And the goal of these treatments should be to make you feel better, not worse. Um, So why is it just poor regulation? Yeah. and no structure. If there was a, a body that positioned themselves as the the gold standard training academy and it was actually comprehensive, not a short course, uh, I'm sure people would be much more inclined to pursue it and, and do it. But because there's no guarantee that even once you've done the training, you're going to be successful or, or set yourself up, I don't think people are prepared to commit the time and the money and whatnot into doing any comprehensive training without dipping the toe in the water. Mm. But if when they dip the toe in the water, they get so confident initially that they feel like they don't need any more training. Mm. And what's your most popular treatment? Uh, would have to be by far the, the non-surgical nose job by, by a long way. Yeah, I read on your website that you do over, what was it, a thousand non-surgical nose well, when, jobs a year? When, when COVID's not locking me down. <laughs> uh, I do a lot. It's some, I, I don't know why or how this came about. I learned how to do nose filler when I uh, was overseas for, for three months. And when I came back years ago, it just wasn't really a thing. It was a thing, but it wasn't really known about. And Mm. the work that I saw wasn't that impressive, like the stuff they were doing in Asia. And when you look at the nose, it's, it's a funny thing. It's in the middle of your face. It's aside from the lips, the, the only feature which has one of it, it's not a paired feature. And unlike most parts of the face, which are curved and kind of flow into one another, the nose is like angular and straight. And the problem with that is if it's not straight or there are slight 
shadows and contour regularities it just is very eye-catching at least mm. for the person who whose nose it is mm. i often liken it to a crooked photo on the wall <laughs> or a crooked picture that's how most people describe it or it. feel about it yeah. when i when i pose the kind of proposition yeah, so I'd love you to kind of explain for our listeners exactly what it is. Because like we kind of said in our intro, we only found out about this procedure when um, one of our first podcasts ages ago, we just touched on it. Yeah. And we had no idea that this was even yeah. like a possibility. And I feel like it, yeah, it really has just sort of become popular now because it's mm. been around for a while, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, fillers have been around for decades and people inject fillers in all sorts of places, which I'm sure you girls are familiar with. We have. <laughs> um, and look, fillers are a powerful thing when it's done properly. Uh, and as I've alluded to before, that's really the, the key. So the nose, uh, I, I guess you have to look at it in a number of ways in that it's about perception and how the nose looks to the person who, whose nose it is. Uh, and how it looks in photos is common a common concern, and how they how people feel their nose looks to others. And it's very angular; it's straight. It's it's it, there's only one of it. And when we we talk about what makes it an appealing or an attractive nose, you have to consider a number of things. So you have to consider one the the gender or the sex of the person, the shape of their face, the size of their face, their body. They have a very slim, slender body and, and a rounder, broad nose. There's a bit of a mismatch. Uh, the ethnicity, whether it's one or, or mixed. And then the nose itself. So what are the qualities of it? How wide is it? How straight is it? Is there a deviation? How tall or long is it? Are there any contour irregularities like dorsal humps? And then because people are, are in general quite peculiar and they they like things to be orderly and, and aligned, and I'm looking at your bookshelf where all the books are lined up straight <laughs> and if they're not, they're still well positioned. You should people, see our actual place. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you have to wear it, it's a bit different. Uh, so people like things to be proper and they like things to look nice and, and if things are slightly off, once you see it, you can't unsee these mm. things. And once you see a problem with your nose, it it kind of it, it eats away at you. And, mm. and a lot of people I consult about the nose, generally there's, there's two ways that they've come to be bothered by it. It's either because they've been bullied when they were younger by friends, uh, or maybe not friends, but sometimes they've been picked on by friends. Family as well I've had where people have told by uh, being told by their parents that they need a nose job when they're older. Um, and then there are the ones that just maybe see a photo from a particular angle and just something about the way their nose looks doesn't sit well with them. And the more they look at it, the more it bugs them and it kind of builds up over time. And once you realize that people have uh, are dissatisfied with the appearance of the nose, you need to work out, well, if, if they are, can you change the shape? And if you can change the shape, how can you change the shape? And traditionally, this has involved surgery. I mean, surgery for rhinoplasty at least is, at least is well, you can have open or closed rhinoplasty depending on the technique, you can use grafts, implants, these types of things. You can add tissue or resect to make bigger or smaller. You can straighten a deviation. You can open airways. And it's a very powerful thing. You can add and take away and reshape, but it's expensive, downtime, risk. Painful. They're painful. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, can't, I can't speak from experience, but from what I see, the recovery is not great. Mm -hmm. And then you have to think, what if you don't like it? And it's not uncommon. In fact, uh, with the with the filler, the nose filler treatment, I often 
consult people who have had rhinoplasty and really? are not happy. Mm. And the funny thing is that I ask them if their nose has been improved by the surgery and they say yes. Unanimously, it's been improved, but very few exceptions. Mm. But they feel worse oh. because it's not perfect. Because if the nose... If you've gone through something as expensive and involved as rhinoplasty and there's a little bit off or something that just doesn't sit well with you, it can be very disappointing and disheartening. And so the other option which has emerged and like you've correctly said has been around for a while but really only gained popularity and I guess awareness in the last few years is putting filler in the nose. And filler in the nose gave people who had concerns about the appearance of their nose a very powerful option in that you can come in and use very tiny needles to inject filler in uh, strategic areas of the nose to completely change the shape, mm. like completely, in ways you probably don't even think is possible. Um, and it's much more affordable. It's not permanent, which I guess is a pro or a con, depending on if you are happy with the result or not. Although every, every treatment that you, you can have has these pros and cons. And so when, when this started, I guess, becoming more commonplace and more known about, you have people who have had rhinoplasty and unhappy come in looking to improve their result. You have people who wanted rhinoplasty but now feel there is a much better option and a way to kind of try something out first. And then there are people that always were bothered by their nose but just felt like they were they were never going to have the courage to do surgery or the money or be able to take the time off work. Mm. And when it comes to rhinoplasty, as I mentioned before, there's it's not uncommon for the dissatisfaction rate to be anywhere from 20 to 40%, which is very high. Can I just jump in here? This is like so random. But I heard a study that people that are dissatisfied with rhinoplasty, this is more like worldwide in America, it's the highest, got the highest murder rate where they then go after their surgeons and kill them. Really? I swear to God, I swear to God. It's it's like the biggest surgery that has the dissatisfaction rate where they go as far as go after their surgeon. Because it's on the face. It's on the face. And people are hung up on their nose for their whole life. And Mm. if you've made someone feel worse, uh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Vengeance. I've heard that. I've also heard it's one of the hardest surgeries to have because it doesn't actually set properly for a year. Like yeah. you get a lot of swelling yeah. and it's very emotional and you have to be really ready for yeah. it in the roller coaster. And a, a lot of good surgeons nowadays recommend uh, you have counseling before and or after your surgery mm. you can't just to prepare. Yourself. And mm. it can change your face. Mm. Um, and it is technically challenging. But for the right person, it, it is great. And the right person is typically someone with a big nose. If you have an objectively large nose, filler might be able to improve it if it's not too big. But once you hit a certain size, uh, filler is just not appropriate. doesn't mean people don't do it. Uh, I just try and steer clear and give people honest advice. Uh, yeah, so a bigger nose is the only noses that aren't suitable for nose filler? There are a few, a few exceptions to what nose filler can do. So... I guess if you look at how nose filler works, we're using dermal filler. It's a gel. It adds volume. And there are different types of filler. You've got to use one that mimics the the underlying support structure of the nose, that being the bone and the cartilage. 
And typically, what can you do? Well, if someone's got a bump, you can put filler above and below the bump to disguise it. If someone has a droopy or down-pointing nose tip, you can add projection to make it look more lifted, often called a, a lift. I don't know if you can tell I've had my nose done. <laughs> so it's often referred to as a lift, but you're not actually lifting. Mm. Uh, if someone's got a deviation, you can fill the weak side to make it look more centralized, although that does widen it slightly. But there are limitations. So yes, you're correct, Alarin, that a nose that's too large, whilst you can straighten almost any nose, mm. it doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. The, the gain must be uh, worthwhile and, and offset the loss in the increase in size because no matter how, way, how uh, you may look at it, adding filler makes it slightly larger. The other types of noses that can't be injected, well, if someone's got a very wide nose, and by wide I mean at the, the bases of the nostrils, mm -hmm. you can't slim the nostrils with, with filler. You can make the actual dorsum or top of the nose look slimmer um, by putting filler down the entire length of it. But if, someone's, if someone has widely set nostrils, you can't reduce those. Uh, another type of nose which is not really treatable is someone whose dorsum or top of the nose is very vertically oriented uh, in, in the kind of, in this plane, so to speak. Um, because if you want to make it straight, you have to continue the angle up the nose and it will end up starting on their forehead, oh, which looks true. quite bizarre. Uh, the last type of nose that just can't be treated is a surgical nose or someone who's had rhinoplasty surgery that has extensive scarring. Um, the nose has layers and to put filler in safely, you need to be able to get in between the layers and, and, and inject the filler. But if there's extensive scarring and the skin is stuck down, so to speak, uh, the risk is just too high and the potential for a result is too low. So it must, the cost benefit analysis question must make sense to, to justify doing it, or at least in my mm. opinion. This episode is brought to you by Oxygenetics Australia product that is makeup and skincare all in one. So many people spend lots of money on skincare and treatments only to put on makeup which blocks their pores and spreads bacteria. So when we came across Oxygenetics, a foundation which is aloe vera based and draws oxygen to the skin to heal and protect it from free radicals, we jumped on it. Since using Oxygenetics, our skin has been feeling fab. So fab. So slide into our DMs if you'd like to be color matched. And enjoy the episode. Could you take us through like all, like basically summarize the procedure? So um, what should someone expect if they're having it done? How long would it take? How long to see results? Just kind of the, the all overview, the, basics. the overview. Yeah, yeah. And that's the beauty of it. It's so simple. Uh, a typical person who I treat on the average day comes in, they've often done a bit of research, they've, they've had a look at my website and read some information, looked at before and afters. And so they kind of know what to expect in a sense. Uh, I, I generally like to be quite comprehensive and I run through, I guess, what is achievable, what the limitations are, as well as how it works and what can go wrong. I think that's a very important discussion to have. And then also the, how to maintain it. There's, there's a very strict way you need to do the nose if you want to maintain your results to prevent problems. Uh, and the problem that you mainly see in a nose that has been mistreated over the years is migration where you cause a, a lot of distortion of the actual nose itself and it just looks like a big swollen mess. Mm -hmm. So after that discussion, 
It's very straightforward. I, I usually do some to, uh, some marking to ensure precision. Uh, we clean the skin, and then we use very tiny needles. I mean, unanimously, bar two people ever, my patients said it was much less painful than they were anticipating. So That's I've had what two. Yeah, I've had two <laughs> people who thought it was uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like I said, I mean, when I was in Melbourne two weeks ago, I think I did about ninety of them in a week. Oh my gosh. And it's a, a very comfortable procedure. The injection time is probably about ten minutes, give or take another five, depending on how complicated it is. More complicated noses, just depending on the shape or if you've had surgery before. And you'll see an instant result. I mean, most people have a little bit of redness of the skin, which settles pretty quickly. Bruising, roughly one in 20, although it's usually mild, but occasionally can be a bit of a bad one, but that Mm -hmm. does settle. And swelling is usually minimal as well. So I tell people, look, expect it to be red for that afternoon and expect it to be mildly tender for a few days. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you can get back to essentially all activity straight away with a new nose. And it's an Um, instant result. Instant result. Uh, Straight away. Yeah. So I often take my after photos and then put the before and after side by side. And they've been taken 10 minutes apart and people are just blown away. A lunchtime break. I remember we put up the before afters of Caitlin's when she had nose filler and someone actually abused us on the page because they were like, this is a surgery, yeah. like, blah, blah, blah. You're Why setting are you unrealistic expectations. Yeah. 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 We were yeah. like, no, it's literally nose filler. Yeah. It was and it amazing. Looks, it looks like it's been a surgical yeah. change, which is unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And I can imagine would be so rewarding to be able to give your patients yeah, that. It is. It definitely is. And that's, and I mean, you look at the types of treatments that are, are done now and there's, I guess there's like your cosmetic augmentation, like nose filler and lip filler, and then your anti-aging treatments. Mm. And there is timeless beauty, <clears throat> excuse me. And there are trends. I, I more prefer the timeless approach. I think it's tried and tested. It's something that you can really change someone's life um, for the long term rather than just a passing fad that's arguably a bit opportunistic, especially when they are medical procedures. But it's great. It's rewarding. I enjoy it. It's on the more challenging side of the type of treatments you can do with dermal fillers, which is why not a lot of people offer it. Mm. Um, and, And the results blow my mind every time. Like I constantly, sometimes I see a nose and I think, well, this is a tough one. And I'd say I had one today and I said, I don't know if we're going to get you there. Like we'll get an improvement, but just beware straight might not be possible. And it comes up and it looks straight and I'm like, there you go. (laughs) It just is. And you must see so many happy people as well. It has the highest satisfaction rate of any treatment I do by far. Mm. Um, And look, most people are satisfied with every treatment, Mm. but that one you see really uh, changes someone's how they feel about themselves. At the end of the day, that's what I'm trying to do. Mm. And how often do you actually have to get filler? Like, good question. It... That's a good question. How often do you think? Well, I think well, from what we've learned, and we're not experts, <clears throat> but it kind of depends on the person and their like metabolic, metabolic rate. Metabolic. Yeah. Because I had my like I had a bit of nose filler. I said that before, um, and it's honestly it doesn't look it doesn't look like it's gone, does it? Mm. No, are you, I like think it might be bit, going a little bit now. But, but that was eighteen been... months ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a funny thing, and it's I'd call it controversial, 
but it's not controversial. There's just a lot of misunderstanding about how fillers actually work. Oh. There's a, a colleague of mine in Melbourne named uh, Dr. Gavin Chan, and he works in the eastern suburbs, and he's scanning people with MRI machines 10 years after mm. their filler, and it's all there. I read that out. I read that out. Yeah, yeah, and he's got a lot of YouTube videos, and he's very pro-education and informing people on yeah. just what can be done. The problem is, <clears throat> I mentioned earlier, retail medicine and corporate business getting into the industry at the clinic level and so this uh, idea that fillers only last six to twelve or in some cases I've seen companies say three months in terms of filler longevity is designed to get you addicted and to keep you coming back mm, and typically yeah. what you get addicted to is how it looks before it's settled which is a big problem uh, because how it looks when it's settled uh, before it's settled, sorry, when it's a bit swollen, classic example is, is uh, lip fillers, is never achievable with fillers. You will never get the swollen look once you have healed. And this just sets you up for addiction. Mm. Sorry, I'm just laughing. My lips were so swollen after I got them done. <laughs> I went out that night. I yeah. Know, and it was Had a drink or two, did you? <laughs> yeah, you yeah. definitely weren't getting addicted to that look. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, like the swelling with a little bit of a crisp border. And yeah. the, the issue is uh, you, you put it in, a little bit of swelling. People, for the most part, like it when it's a bit swollen and, and whatnot. Because swelling can be very defined. And swelling doesn't pull water in in the same way that filler does because filler is very water loving. It holds a, a, a large capacity of it. And so when the swelling goes down, which in some cases can take over a month, even longer, people think, oh, it's just worn off that little bit. But mm. it hasn't. That's just the result. So go back for more. And it's okay the first few times, but the issue you have is you're stretching the tissue. And tissue is by, and by tissue, I mean the skin essentially of the face. It's elastic, especially when you're young. And when you stretch something that's elastic, like a rubber band, it wants to pull back and, mm. and return to its original shape. And so you go and you get more and you get more and then you start to put this elastic quality of the tissue under strain and it starts to spring back. But this process is very gradual, it takes time. And so as you see, I guess, or as you perceive the, the result going away, it's not actually going away. The elasticity of your tissue is just squeezing the filler somewhere else. So your filler isn't wearing off, it's just moving. But it's so gradual, you don't notice it. And then you go back and get more and more. And before you know it, you've got a face full of, full of uh, filler. So how long does it last? Well, personally, I had filler done in 2017. I haven't had anything since. And it's not all there, but it definitely is still there because I can feel it when I squeeze certain parts of my face. I've got some just under my eyes uh, for hollowness. Um, in the nose, same thing. Um, I've seen over two years for some people. Conversely, and this is very rare, uh, and I can count on two hands how many people I've ever treated that had this problem, their filler truly lasted less than six months. Mm. Is it down to metabolism? Possibly to a degree, but I mean, fillers are broken down by an enzyme, and I mean, everyone's different. You're going to have different amounts of that enzyme that breaks down filler. It's going to work to different degrees from one person to another. So for that reason, because it's so unpredictable, I just have a very strict protocol in how often I am willing to treat the nose. And my general rule of thumb is you should treat the nose and other areas of the face for that matter as little as possible and as infrequently as possible. And you mentioned that the elasticity in our skin sort of pulls it back. What happens, this is just out of interest, what happens when your elasticity is like fading and you're getting a bit, as you, as you get older? <coughs> 
So as you age and your skin loses elasticity, it also stretches. So a good analogy is like a table with a tablecloth over the top. <laughs> so yeah, the, the tablecloth is the skin and the table can be thought of as like the bone and the fat and everything underneath. And over time, that tablecloth's getting bigger, so it's stretching and gravity's pulling it down. The problem is the table's also getting smaller. And what a lot of people do is they, they want to look tight and they want to look lifted. And rather than tightening up the tablecloth by tightening the skin, and there are various ways you can do that, although prevention is much more powerful than trying to reverse it without surgery, they go down the path of filler, trying to fill it out. And this gives you the classic overfilled, middle-aged person who I guess looks tight and lifted, but their head looks too big for their body mm. or their certain features look too large for their face. Typically, it's cheeks. Cheeks are propagators being able to lift when they can't really lift in a substantial way. So as you lose elasticity, what happens? Well, you don't have the same problem of migration in the same way, but because you have a larger canvas with which to put filler, you're just going to fill the skin out more and more and more and grow the size of your face. Now, you won't really get migration until you put so much in that that skin is now under tension again. Mm. But by the time someone with excess skin to that degree has the skin under tension, their face would be so big, they're not going to get filler to, to make it reach that point. And you mentioned prevention is your preference. How should someone prevent losing or slow down the lose, like losing elasticity from their skin? Uh, it's very simple. The issue is there are so many options uh, and everyone says theirs is the best and everyone says theirs is the one that works and theirs is the secret formula. And I like to work off basic principles of the skin. If you cause trauma to the skin, you, your body makes collagen through a process. Uh, it, it's like scarring um, and scar tissue is typically very rigid. But when you traumatize it in the right way, uh, you get a very elastic type of collagen, which was much more, I guess, youthful and rejuvenating and bouncy in quality. Um, so needles, are number one, mm. but then there are different types of needles. <clears throat> so you can have micro needling where, which from what I hear is quite painful and you end <laughs> up red <laughs> yeah, and you end up very red and, and whatnot. And that works. The problem most people have with micro needling is that they uh, they're not informed about what the point is. So they go in already with big pores or bad scars or aged skin and wrinkled skin. And when they don't get a dramatic improvement, even after six treatments, they feel like they've been cheated and it doesn't work. The problem is they've missed the entire point in that you should have been doing it 10, 20, uh, 10 15 years ago. To oh, maintain. so we've got in early. You're, you're oh. doing it right. So That's right, everyone come to our next needling party. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, the, but at the end of the day, whilst that's going to keep your collagen levels up and keep things tight, it is limited. And then there's a second type of treatment that involves heating. Um, so you <laughs> may have come painful. across... Uh, <laughs> RF needling. Yes, oh RF God, needling. It's painful. <laughs> so RF needling is what I have done. Oh, um, I mean, you have a very glowy comp yeah. complexion. Thank you. Thank you. I have to practice what I preach. So Absolutely. Um, you can have radio frequency alone. Uh, it feels like a hot stone massage, but this is probably not. You, ha you only have limited time, limited budget. Mm. Uh, so you need to be very focused in what you do. And I'm the type of person that says if I want, I'm, I'm willing to spend more if I, if I have more confidence that it's going to work and it makes more sense. So radio frequency microneedling essentially involves needles that go into the skin and sit there for a short period of time. And then those needles emit energy in the form of heat and it's hot. 
Mm. And I have a, a friend actually who had it recently. She's a doctor and she thought, oh, it wasn't that good. Uh, I didn't really feel or see much of a difference. And I said, look, if it didn't hurt, it wasn't strong enough. You should have told them to turn the machine up. Because yeah. essentially, if you think about when you cook something, it shrinks. If you cook a steak or you cook food, it shrinks. Mm. It's shrink wrapping. So by using these needles which are essentially are heat delivery devices to get heat into the deeper layer of skin dermis, you cause contraction of the dermis by a shrink wrapping effect. The needles are just an added bonus. So it's the deeper delivery of the heat energy, which is the powerful thing. That is the best no downtime way to keep your skin tight and age well if you do it once or twice a year. The issue is the pain because it is quite painful. Oh, I was just going to say the first time, Ella, well, the only time Ella had it done... She was on a three-day juice cleanse. And I hadn't she, eaten she in had two days. You didn't pass out, did she you? Was, I was like, close to. And, like, was so airy. Like, eyes rolling back in yeah. the head. <laughs> they gave me this little vibrating thing to, like, kind of vibrate Not on enough. my leg to, like, Not move enough. the nerves. And I was like, I'm going to pass out. They are like, trying to talk to me. I was like, don't talk to me. And Which, then we ordered pizza and she I came. ate it. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to the nose filler. Of course. Is it reversible? If somebody didn't like the result. Depends what type of filler has been put in the nose. So augmenting the nose non-surgically can be done, I guess, two ways. One is with filler, one is with threads, although I rarely advocate threads in the nose for a number of reasons. There's, there's very rare circumstances where it's reasonable, but for the most part, threads should not go in the nose at all. Uh, so uh, under the umbrella of fillers, there are different types. You've got your HA fillers, which are temporary and reversible. You've got permanent fillers, which are irreversible. Although some say they kind of wear off over 10 years, they're more likely to just kind of disperse somewhere else in a, in a subtle way. And then there are the semi-permanent ones, which are temporary, but not reversible. And look, there are some doctors that put permanent fillers in the nose and that's totally fine. But my mantra is if, if you... Once you put permanent fillers in the nose, it's all well and good until it's not. And when it's not good, if it's permanent, well, you need to go in and cut it out, which is a bit of a disaster. Um, so I use strictly the reversible type of filler in the nose. Uh, so if, I guess, why would you want to reverse? Well, if you don't like it, I've never had to reverse one because someone didn't like the result. Uh, but I'm pretty good at screening out people who I just don't think it's going to work for. Mm. Um, typically, dissatisfaction occurs either if the expectations haven't been managed properly, if you've overpromised, um, or if you've under-delivered, under if you haven't done it properly or you haven't picked the right person. And the other reason is if there's a problem. So if you have a, a complication, and complications are a numbers game. One of my old bosses when I was working in a hospital said, if you haven't had a complication, you haven't done it enough. Uh, and I'd counsel people to... If, if their injector denies having had a problem, they're either lying, uh, which I don't think is right, or they haven't done it enough times, which says their experience isn't as, as good as it should be. Uh, so if you have a problem with a reversible filler, you can dissolve it with a small injection. Mm. The issue is the dissolver has risks. So you can be allergic to, to it. And I've had a patient with a severe allergy to the dissolver. I've also uh, heard it's really painful. Uh, it depends pain how it's yeah. done. Yeah. yeah. So, and this is another problem when there's poor training in that when I dissolve filler, it's essentially painless because I know how to use appropriate analgesia and anesthesia. 
the first time I ever dissolved someone's filler, they had a small lump in the lip years ago, and I'd been taught to mix the dissolver with uh, sterile water. And sterile water to inject itself is very painful. And this was a accredited uh, training academy that said to do it. And the person who, who, who I injected, it was awful. And I did it once and I never did it again. No, so every no. time, if someone has a, a problem, um, if uh, I may dissolve noses that have been done elsewhere with the, the wrong type of filler and you need to start with a, a blank canvas, otherwise you run into problems, I just make sure that we, we, we numb the area properly. And I don't mean numbing cream. Numbing cream I think is overrated. I never use numbing cream, not mm. even for lip fillers. I just don't think it's necessary if you're gentle with the tissue. Um, but by mixing the, the dissolve with anesthetic, using injections to numb the area first, it makes it really comfortable. And you mentioned risks in dissolving the nose, but we actually don't, I don't think we touched on risks of actually having the procedure. So could you walk yeah. us through that? So uh, look, it is safe. Number one, when it's done properly uh, is the caveat to, to that. So a lot of people don't offer it uh, because they don't feel comfortable and that's good. That I, I would encourage that if you don't feel like you can do it safely or you don't know how to identify or manage a problem or if you're not confident in getting a good result, just own it. And, and people will respect you in saying it's just beyond my scope. What I have a problem with is people who don't know how to do it and lie and say it's high risk and you're going to go blind and the world's going to end and your nose is going to fall off. It's just not providing people with factual information so that they can make an informed decision. So if you look at risks, I mean, it depends how you define a risk, number one, but I generally go through everything that is not uh, expected from a routine treatment. So like bruising, about 5%. And of those, about one in 20 is a pretty bad one. And I mean like a bad bruise on the top of the nose and it sucks when it happens, but it just is what it is. Swelling can happen, usually minimal, but can be pronounced. And the issue with swelling is you might wake up, you might wake up the next day and think uh, it's been overdone and it looks horrendous. But once it settles, it's, it's almost certainly fine. And then you go into complications, which are more real complications. So problems that need intervention. So things like infection of the filler or skin, uh, flares of cold sores, because come, some, uh, some people can get cold sores on the nose. Your body can reject the filler. It's a foreign material. Uh, if your body identifies that for, uh, material as foreign, it can start to attack it and cause you to develop little firm nodules. Uh, you can be uh, allergic to the filler and the anesthetic contained within the syringe. The thing is with those types of problems, aside from severe allergies, things like infection and the body reacting to the filler, they're not as time critical as other complications. So they're pretty treatable as long as you, you do something about it in the earlier stages. The big risks of nose filler, and, and these are risks of all filler, and yes, they are higher in the nose. So I don't want to mislead people and say this is as safe as lip filler or cheek filler or, or a chin augmentation with filler, but... Blindness is number one, stroke is number two, and something called tissue ischemia and necrosis is number three. Now, blindness means blindness, and I mean total blindness in one or both eyes. Mm. It's happened two to 300 times around the world, as far as I'm aware, from all types of fillers in the face, not just the nose. And that includes fat transfer, where they liposuck some fat out of the body and inject it into the face. It includes permanent fillers, semi-permanent fillers, uh, and reversible fillers. 
of those, I think from from memory, and I haven't read this paper for a while, but it was 40 to 50 from the nose. That and the thing about this is it's not it's never impossible. And whenever I consult someone, I always tell them this risk is astronomically low. It's you've got more chance of being struck by lightning, but it's possible. And if it happens, it's it's catastrophic because whilst people say, yeah, we just send you to hospital, we dissolve the filler, to my knowledge, it's never been successfully treated. So you must, and for some people, it's not acceptable. Uh, and and I, I make sure that when people decide to proceed, I have a very safe technique. Like I will sacrifice a result for safety every time without question or argument. Uh, and I, there's no justification for doing otherwise. Stroke is rarer than blindness, um, especially when using the, the type of quantity or the, the volume of filler you put in the nose. I mean, less than one mil typically per treatment. The last one is the most, uh, I guess, concerning is not the right word. It's probably the most important one to consider if you're deciding to have the treatment or if as a pra practitioner you want to offer it. In experienced hands, and I mean very experienced hands, the risk of what we call tissue ischemia, the mechanism of which is essentially if you inject filler into an artery and block blood flow to the skin, depriving it of oxygen, is about one in 2,000. If you are of average or little experience, it goes up exponentially to the point where it may be one in 100 to one in 200, maybe one in 300 or so. So it's rare, but it's not uncommon. And there's more cases of tissue ischemia from vascular occlusion with injections of filler into arteries than you think. It's just not talked about. What happens? Like, what does that actually mean? So uh, to give you an example, if uh, we're, we're injecting the nose or the lips or anywhere for that manner, and the needle goes in and we can't see through skin unless your skin's withered and thin. Um, but even then there are deeper vessels you can't always see. And the needle tip enters a, an artery. And there are ways you can tell if it has, although it's not foolproof. And then you proceed to inject filler into that artery. You've now blocked it. And blood can no longer flow through that artery. And the artery's job is to supply blood to part of the tissue. So whether that's the skin or, or the fat or the muscle, and if the blood flow is blocked, wherever that artery was supplying blood to is not going to get blood supply. And the primary, I guess, need of tissue is oxygen so it can produce energy and, and do its metabolic functions to, to stay alive, essentially. You cut off oxygen and you cut it off for long enough, it'll start the tissue in, in filler, in the case of filler, usually it's the skin, will start to become injured. And it gets progressively more injured and more injured and eventually it will die and and turn black and the skin will break down um, and you'll have a scar once it all it all heals and it will heal um, but it's a it's not a nice thing to have to deal with sounds awful yeah and that's why it's important that you make sure the person knows what they're doing and this brings us back to what we were speaking about when we started in that how do you know the person knows what they're doing? And there's no foolproof way to know apart from seeing how many they do and speaking to people that have had it done by the person. Mm. So if I tell you that someone who thinks they know what they're doing or is inexperienced and just feels like they want to try noses because it looks easy because they saw a video and anything looks easy if you see it's someone who's done it hundreds of times doing it, they don't know what they don't know. They don't know that they're actually putting someone at undue risk. And 
it's a numbers game, as I said before. So if I do, let's say, 40 nose fillers per week, which is pretty average for, for what I do at the moment, in a year, that's over a 1,000, mm. over 2,000 if I'm doing 40 every week and I decide not to go away. And if I've done 2,000 in a year, then by, based on the numbers uh, which we have evidence for, I will have this problem in one person. If you're someone who is inexperienced and is doing maybe 20 a year, and that's probably a lot for someone who just does it here and there. The average person probably does it five times a year. Over their career of 40 years, they're only going to do 200. And if you look at the rate of this in someone who is inexperienced of about, and call it one in 200 for argument's sake, they might get none or one in 40 years. Whereas over 40 years in someone who's doing it 2,000 times a year, they will have about 40. So you might look at that and say, you had this 40 times and this person had it none. Mm. So why would I go to you? It's a numbers game and it's probability. If I told you right now, you can go to this person and the risk is one in 200 or mean it's one in 2000, but I've treated 1,999 mm. people this year and it hasn't happened, It you need to weigh that up. But the response to that would be, well, it's one in 2000 per person. Just mm. because I've done almost 2000 people in a year doesn't mean that the next one's going to get it. Mm. The thing about that is, though, if you're safe in your technique and the, the risk is very low, but if it happens, it should only be a very mild or, or, or small area of skin that's affected for the most part, which means, and usually there are signs. And if you treat this early enough, it doesn't cause a problem. So for instance, if I am injecting someone and I see their skin flash white, I think, well, that's not normal. What, what's happened? This is out of the ordinary. And I have a very low tolerance for reversing things in the nose. If there's something I don't like. I can just dissolve the filler uh, because I know what to look for. And I know the signs that blood flow has been blocked immediately. Uh, and that's just through training and experience. Most people won't be able to recognize these problems because they are extremely subtle. So if this happens and we dissolve the filler that we've just put in, you're going to go home with bruising and swelling and no result. You're going to think, well, that was awful, but at least you'll be okay. The issue is if the person who's injected you doesn't know what they're looking for and they're rushed, they're running late, they haven't eaten, which is why I'm talking about breakfast. I try and get something in the tank before I start work. Um, then you go home and you wake up the next day and you started getting little pustules on the nose or, or, or on the lip or on the mm. cheek or little blisters. And or maybe not even that. Maybe the skin just looks an abnormal color. And because you haven't had it before, you think, well, it should be fine. I'll just see how it goes. So you wait another day. And then you've missed the boat to treat it. And mm. now you you message your injector who didn't tell you what, it, what to look out for because they haven't been, come across it before. And they bring you in and they do some dissolving, but it's too late. Skin's mm. already going to die. Mm. And then you're going to have scarring. And how bad is the scarring? Depends how bad the blockage is. If you, the technique I use, like I said, should only affect a small area of the skin if it is to occur. But I mean, there, there was a case on Botch. We were talking about the show before, like um, Terry and Paul in, in, in the US. And it was a, a young woman who had nose filler, was very happy. And the next day noticed something was off and her whole nose died. And mm. she needed a whole new one built with surgery. Oh, my God. Uh, I think I saw that episode, actually. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was a great episode. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're all great episodes. But, um, it's, <laughs> We've it's, got a botched fan over here. Oh, yeah. Big one. <laughs> because they're ethical and they try and do the right thing by people. Mm. The funny thing about the position they're in is they now attract people that, I guess, have 
requests that wouldn't be considered uh, healthy and the average surgeon or, or doctor would try and talk you out of. Mm. And the, the problem that puts them in is they know these people are going to do it anyway. And they, they, they have to kind of decide, well, should I just do it because I know I'll be safe yeah. and if something goes wrong, I can look after them rather mm. than have them go to some backyard person doing it yeah. at their house yeah. um, and having a problem. And it's an interesting position to to be in. Mm. And this is, I guess, the the hard part of when you try and do things the right way and the comprehensive way and you try and do the right thing by people. Like if I tell someone it's not going to work, there's no point. Most of the time they'll, they'll listen. Mm. Uh, but I know there are some people, and lips is a classic one, when I say you can't fit any more in. Your lips are at volume capacity. <laughs> you, you want something that's not achievable. And I know they go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, but lip fillers on the spectrum of things are relatively benign. Whereas when it comes to the nose and things more invasive like surgery, you don't have that luxury. Mm. Yeah. And a final kind of question I had on the nose filler is what's mm. the rough guide for costing? Yeah, so I I charge per treatment procedure. Uh, I, I have a problem with people who charge strictly per, per volume because whilst syringes of filler generally come in one mil, there are some types that come in 1.2 and 0.6. Uh, it's very rare that you actually need that exact amount, especially in the lips, classic. I can't tell you the last time I ever used exactly one mil or half a mil of filler in the lips. So it's more of a procedure fee and it covers, I guess, my time, my overheads, my training. Um, yes, the product to a degree, how much skills required. Uh, so a treatment with, with myself is 990, 990 for a standard nose. If it's more complicated, such as uh, those that have had surgery and need it corrected, that is higher risk, more technical, more challenging. So that's 1190. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you need a touch up uh, or a top up treatment, which I only advocate doing once ever after the first time you have it. Really? Yes, you should never do that as a routine thing. Um, that's 390 for a routine one in 590 if you've had surgery before. Once you've had, and only about one in five people will need a kind of second stage or top up treatment. And ideally you should do it within the first couple of weeks. And it just helps to stabilize the result. Mm -hmm. If as the filler is settled, the result's kind of not as prominent. You might ask, why not just put more in? The issue is if one in five people need a top up and I decide, okay, I'm going to put more in, then four in five are now going to have too much. Mm -hmm. And putting too much filler in the nose is a recipe for disaster mm -hmm. in, the, in the long term. Maintenance-wise, space them out as long as possible. Um, but when you go to kind of more maintenance-type treatments, which are done more infrequently, you shouldn't be going down the path of regular top-ups after each maintenance treatment. Well, thank you for answering all of our questions on this treatment. Um, if there are listeners who have more questions, where can they find you? Uh, so I'm very active on Instagram. I respond to all my messages personally, although sometimes it does take me a couple of days to, to catch up on things. Um, and the other, the other place, my website. So, I mean, you can just Google my name, it will come up, or you can go through my Instagram or Facebook page to my website and use the contact form. Um, that will go to my manager. Um, but if it's clinical, uh, related to anything clinical, it'll get forwarded to me. If it's just general inquiries, like availability and cost, it will go to them. Um, and then my website, I've got heaps of information that I've written as well. Just trying to position in a really unbiased way. Um, cause I don't want to sway people into things I don't need. I just want to be able to inform people so that they can make a decision that's right for them. Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Aaron. We've absolutely loved chatting with you about nose filler and 
have learned a lot, I think. Yeah, and we'll see everyone next week on Cosmetics. Thanks, guys. <laughs>